It's the 19th of April, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast brought to you by RoomNow.live. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week we're going to talk about time. A famous man once said that time wounds all heals. Did I get that right? I did. Specifically, we're going to talk about time to flare when withdrawing DMAR therapy or the timing of steroid use when doing a temporal artery biopsy? Or how about the timing of cortisone injections when doing surgery on a joint that you're injecting? This and more in this edition of the Room Now podcast. We're gonna start with um, a tweet that I put out just yesterday, I believe, about NXP2 antibodies. I find these fascinating. Number one, they're coming across our desk. If you order a myositis panel, a lot of the uh, companies that are doing myositis antibody bottles, which used to be, you know, PL7, PL12, MI2, SRP, Joe1, EJ, OJ, those things. But now they're adding in, um, without really are asking for TIF1, TIF1 gamma antibodies and NXP2 antibodies. Very interesting, um, but I looked this up just again recently because I have a patient with dermatomyositis and extensive calcinosis cutis, and she has, lo and behold, an NXP2 antibody. Now, NXP2 and the TIF1, TIF1 gamma antibodies are two new antibodies associated with um, cancer, especially in adults. They can be seen in kids, but when seen in adults, there's a, they seem to be associated with cancer, specifically, uh, I, I believe 85% of patients who have cancer and dermatomyositis will have NXP2 or TIF1 antibodies. Uh, this, along with the MDA5 antibodies, is a real new constellation to uh, autoantibody profiling. But I want to talk about NXP2. Again, it can be seen in kids, can be seen in adults, can be associated with more severe uh, myositis disease and very refractory myositis, myositis disease. Um, but I learned just this week that one of the cutaneous manifestations seen with NXP2 is calcinosis, and it can be widespread, it can be difficult to manage, it might well be the sole manifestation of disease. So that's something to look for, the recent article in Rheumatology, March 16th, actually reviews this to some extent. Another interesting report was about ultrasound and identifying enthesial uh, findings by ultrasound. Not surprisingly, they looked at patients with psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis and used fibromyalgia patients. I thought that was gonna be a control, but wait, no. They found enthesial inflammation in 66% of the PSA patients and, um, oh no, no, no. Let me go back. Using ultrasound, everybody had enthesial evidence of, of involvement. 90 plus percent in PSA and in psoriasis. Fibromyalgia, it was 75%. What? If you looked at just clinical manifestation of enthesitis, meaning you press on it and it hurts, much more prevalent in fibromyalgia, 92% versus two thirds of patients with psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis. My point is, shouldn't enthesitis by ultrasound be more specific for the spondyloarthritis kind of diseases like psoriatic disease? What's, why is fibromyalgia showing up so positive? To me, this looks like uh, our, um, uh, AM stiffness. We all love AM stiffness in rheumatology. We think it's the fabulous inflammatory marker that it is until you get to fibromyalgia patients when 
more than half of them have significant AM stiffness, and there goes your whole association with inflammatory disease. Anyway, I don't do a lot of ultrasound, but in seeing this data about ultrasound, anthocytosis, and FM, um, one of you ultrasound mavens needs to explain to me, and then I'll come back and tell the rest of the world why I shouldn't be so hard on ultrasound uh, as a tool in fibromyalgia. An interesting study uh, was published by David Felson and his colleagues looking at over 80 patients with medial knee OA and the efficacy of um, lateral wedge sole inserts. As you know, it's often used. There's not a lot of data about its use. They looked at about 80 something patients and, and then did a pre-screening test to show that, that if you actually did use um, a lateral wedge ins uh, insert, that it might have enough corrective action to be beneficial in unloading OA of the knee, especially in the medial compartment. So in their study of 63 pre-selected patients, um, they showed a significant reduction in um, pain uh, for those that were taking or using the lateral wedge uh, insoles compared to those that were using a neutral sole. The problem is that the difference was really small, 0.7 on a 0 to 10 scale. So while significant numerically, not significant clinically, uh, suggesting that there's probably only a limited number of patients who really will respond to lateral wedge insoles. I can vouch for this. I actually had severe bilateral medial knee OA, required um, knee replacement after about 20 years of almost bone on bone. I use lateral wedge sole inserts. I don't know why I used them, but I used them thinking it might be helping. I don't know that it really helped a lot. It wasn't really clinically apparent to me. So I just went from research to my own anecdotal experience. Uh, this must be a good podcast. The Tara study looked at RA patients, almost 200 of them. They were in remission. They were on a combination of a TNF inhibitor and a DMARD, or actually a biologic and a DMARD. Uh, and then they withdrew the, either the biologic or the conventional DMARD and looked at flare rates a year later. At one year, flare rates were similar between those who had a DMARD weaning of 33% versus those who had a biologic weaning of 43%, suggesting maybe more benefit with the biologic, but these results were not significant. The authors concluded it doesn't matter, and maybe therefore you should try to withdraw the biologic, being that it's like a billion times more expensive. Interesting study. You know, and I don't know why we're still doing weaning studies and withdrawal studies and cessation studies. This seems like to be a bit nonsensical because We've done this research already for the last almost 10 years, really six years. The ACR guidelines are very, very clear that there's a risk when you taper. So you probably shouldn't taper. The guidelines say that, um, that if the patient has low disease activity, to taper would be a bad idea because everybody flares or too many are going to flare. It also says that if you're in remission, you could probably taper some drugs but not stop any drugs, meaning you could probably taper the DMARD and continue the biologic. The study, the Tara study says maybe these are opposite, but you can't go off therapy because there are consequences to that. Patients a high flare rate, and there's radiographic progression that is seen over time. Of course, the real issue on tapering is that patients want to do this anyway. So you need to be armed with the data about how successful this is gonna be. Generally, the data that you should be giving is quite negative, but if patients can get away with it, then congratulations, but it's only gonna be a minority. Uh, the new drug, uh, romosuzumab, say that three times fast, 
was approved by the FDA just recently. Its trade name is called Evenity. The drug, the anti-sclerostin inhibitor, was developed by Amgen and UCB. After a bit of a rocky road and a complete response letter, the drug was approved. The price was announced this week. It's going to be $1,800 a month or about $22,000 a year. Don't worry, it's not available yet, but it will be available later in the year. Uh, it is approved for only postmenopausal uh, osteoporosis patients who are at high risk for fracture. The cost that has been quoted by Amgen is said to be 34 to 74% lower than that seen with Timlos and Forteo, um, the other uh, 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 bone building agents that are out there. Peripheral nervous system involvement in lupus, you say? Ooh, I can't remember. Everybody's got numbness. I never know what that's all about. And is it worth pursuing? Well, it turns out in a, in a review of the, uh, of, uh, the literature, it's only seen in less than 7% of patients with lupus. Uh, most of those, uh, actually not most of them, a third of them was uh, sensory polyneuropathy, a third were cranial neuropathies, and then there's a smattering of other things, in very few cases of mononeuritis. Uh, the risk of peripheral neuropathy was seen with advancing age, uh, advancing lupus activity and damage. So again, it's not that common, uh, gonna, you're not commonly gonna see this in young lupus patients, hot new diagnosed lupus patients. Uh, it can be seen, but it's pretty uncommon. Uh, an interesting report comes from the VA study was reported in Arthritis Care and Research, um, uh, uh, ACNR, Arthritis Care and Rheumatism, Arthritis Care and Research, the sister journal to Arthritis and Rheumatism. Wait, now it's called Arthritis and Rheumatology. Why did they keep changing the names of these journals anyway? The VA study looked at temporal artery biopsy in GCA patients. The numbers here are staggering. Over 3,000 temporal artery biopsies done, 10% of them were positive. Um, and they looked at the factors that were involved in yielding a positive result. They showed that the, and you should, everybody should know this, but I think the data that they came up with reinforces what should be known, is that is the length of the biopsy that's most important. In fact, the length must be at least three centimeters to yield the greatest results. And by having a three centimeter or larger biopsy, you have a 58% increased odds of having a positive result. Uh, doing bilateral biopsies, generally I don't do those, but if you're hell-bent on making a diagnosis, diagnosis doing two rather than one, um, increases the odds of a positive result by 83%. Uh, age greater than 71 years is also a predictive factor. Uh, the interesting thing about this study and why it made the, the highlight reel here is that prednisone use up to 42 days prior to the biopsy did not influence biopsy results. So there's a little bit of conflict out there on this, but I don't think you should avoid a biopsy if someone has recently been started on steroids, which you must do if you really think they have GCA, uh, they could lose their eyesight, start them on 60, 80 milligrams of prednisone and get the biopsy ASAP. Um, risk of gout. We know the risk factors for gout, you know, shellfish, um, alcohol, um, you know, hanging around in uh, hookah bars. That's my own opinion. Um, I've never been in a hookah bar, truth be told. So, um, but we do know that there are some things that are protective too. An interesting study from um, two large Chinese dietary studies shows that uh, those who are eating a vegetarian plant-based diet actually have a significantly lower risk, up to a 60% lower risk of actually developing gout in the future. So avoid the alcohol, uh, skip the sake, go for the vegetables, you'll do better in the long run. A nice uh, uh, 
article came out in the surgical or the uh, surgical literature looking at the timing of, of shoulder corticosteroid injections in patients who ultimately underwent rotator cuff surgery. So this is a very large cohort, like thousands and thousands of patients, and they compared those who had had a prior shoulder injection in the year prior to surgery versus those who never had, and they showed that having a shoulder steroid injection did not uh, adversely affect the outcomes and success of surgery or the complications thereof. However, if that steroid shoulder injection was done within 30 days of the surgical procedure, guess what? Bad news, Charlie. The rates, which were less than 0.8%, now went up to 1.3% for those who had a recent injection, uh, therefore increasing the odds to 1.7 or 70% increase if you had a recent injection. Risk factors uh, for infection included male, obesity, smoking, diabetes, and again, this perioperative uh, steroid injection. Our last report concerns risk factors with scler uh, scleroderma uh, and systemic sclerosis. They had uh, two-thirds of their patients had uh, localized disease, uh, one-third uh, progressive disease. In this particular study, they showed that there was an increased risk of mortality. Uh, uh, standardized mortality rates were increased in scleroderma patients. That's not surprising. Fairly low, and the SMR was 5.73 in this particular study, a meta-analysis of all the literature out there that looked at this showed that the SMR was 3.45, suggesting it's higher. Um, the one-year, two-year mortality rates are fairly low, but the five-year mortality rate is about 14%. Um, the 10-year mortality rate is about 28% um, in scleroderma, and so that's kind of shocking. Reduced survival, elderly or over, over age 60, diffuse systemic sclerosis, scleroderma renal crisis, dyspnea, six-minute walk time being prolonged, Forced vital capacity, less than 70%. DLCO, less than 70%. Pulmonary hypertension, telangiectasia, valvular heart disease, malignancy anemia, and a CRP that's abnormal. Another review of the literature showed pretty much the same profile. Um, uh, mortality being linked also to SCL70 antibodies, but not linked to anti-centromere antibodies. Uh, maybe a little higher on those with uh, cardiac renal uh, involvement, interstitial lung disease. Uh, pulmonary hypertension has been as has been stated so again those are things you want to look out for that's it for this week go to the website click on the links to read more about this go to roomnow.live you can register for on demand our 92 lectures which were fabulous um real interesting lectures great speakers register and you can run around in there and see all the great talks including mine talk to you next week